Chapter Sixteen of A Candle for Our Lady by Regina Victoria Hunt. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Maria Therese. Chapter Sixteen. By twisting paths and winding stairs, he brought the trio to a small apartment with a window on the Thames. It had, they noticed, a good hardwood floor spread with fresh rushes, which gave it, in this small place of varied odors, a most agreeable air. A small console table, carved in Italian style, and perhaps an import, stood near the mullioned window, and a cabinet, similarly carved, against the opposite wall. There were two chairs, still a rarity to rural people, and a cushioned bench or form set near the door. Masking the walls were rather faded tapestries that curtained off an alcove serving as a tiny bedchamber. "'Sit there, Jemmy,' his host moved a chair to the table. Then he turned to a dark oak built-in cupboard and carved appetizing slices of fowl for his half-famished guest. As you say, His Grace of Norfolk has an interest in the case of Sir William Waltham, and in Our Lady's Shrine, seeing as it lay in his own duchy. But this is a touchy matter. His Grace has not so far recovered from the eclipse of three years back, to challenge the Vicar General openly, or an affair of great moment. Yet the charge against Sir William can't be— Jim broke off, groping for the right legal term. Capital, I suppose you mean? Richard Norris smiled sadly. Ordinarily, no. Supposing the charge true, damage to one man's property resulting from a minor riot will be punishable only by fine and perhaps a short term of imprisonment. But these aren't ordinary times. Have you forgot what my uncle and I told you last autumn? About the Pilgrims of Grace? Aye, and the Lincoln Rioters. In neither case was their treason, actual or meditated. Yet were they cut down and hanged without mercy, women, children, religious and all. Only for protesting suppression of monasteries, the enclosures, and demanding dismissal of Cromwell as the author of these things. And so the protesters are dead, and Cromwell more than ever the king's master. Isn't there something we can do? Joan asked. There must be some way we can come to the king, said Jim. A way there is. Richard drew up the other chair, seating himself close to Jim. What way, Mr. Norris? Jim felt an inner surge of excitement. Of a morning, the king always attends mass. Then usually, before breakfast, he goes to the tennis court. There are seldom many about him then. As he leaves, you could stand in the passageway and present your petition. Why, lad, what is it? Are you so terrified of facing our bluff King Howe that you turn lily white? Jim had indeed gone pale, though not at the thought of the king. Oh, Mr. Norris, I, I'm a sorry fool. I haven't the petition. Richard looked at him a little surprised. Oh, t'was taken from you at your commitment? Nay, sir, tis even worse. I... Jim hung his head, not daring to look at any of them. I gave it myself to the Lord Cromwell. Cromwell? Venturing a glance at him, Jim saw the staggered look in Richard Norris's eyes. Rising, Norris paced back and forth across the small chamber. Aye, tis like his subtle sleight of hand. He got his training among the Florentine money-changers, and they say Niccolo Machiavelli's treatise on diplomacy, a thing called The Prince, is his only credo. Oh, Jim, Joan cried, how could you be so, so simpleton? Now, Miss Joan, to the young courtier. Don't be hard on the lad. 
Many a grey beard skilled in politics has been tripped up by a wily vicar general. But I must have a little time to figure a way out of this pass. It was decided that the girls would return to the home of Isabel's aunt, but Jim should remain at Whitehall. Meantime, Richard would find how matters stood with Sir William. Joan would come again in the morning, and Isabel, with a heartening smile for Jim, said she would pray. For surely Our Lady would never forsake her devoted client, Sir William. Know yourself and Joan, she added, for the love you've shown her. Thanks, Jim murmured quickly, and for the moment he felt confident and reassured. But after they had gone and young Norris left for his duties, time dragged heavily. For a while, Jim watched the ever-changing traffic on the river, gilded barge prows and poop-styed bronze shining like gold in the sun, sails thick as clouds with flocks of gulls, wings tipped silver, wheeling and diving like an aerial fleet above them. But thoughts of the growing greatness of England's commerce only reminded Jim of her sovereign. Henry Tudor, with his little twinkling eyes and small mouth set in the great red moon of a face, the man who had gone on a winter's journey barefoot to Our Lady's shrine, yet who had destroyed it, who had loved good Sir Thomas More, yet had him slain, who devoutly heard Mass every day, yet crucified Christ anew in his members. What hope had he, Jemmy Reynolds, an obscure yeoman lad, not yet fourteen, of winning back to reason, to justice and mercy, this soul so consumed in self-love as to strike down all who stood in his path? It was with relief and springing hope that he heard Richard Norris open the door, but a glance at the young man's face was not reassuring. What have you heard? Anything of Sir William? Aye, something, but brace yourself, lad. He took a quick turn about the chamber. I spoke again with Norfolk. Sir William's to be examined before the council once more. Then tis like he'll be sent to the tower. The tower? Jim's voice was hollowed like an echo. The dread tower of London, from which so many of late years, Moore and Fisher and the holy Carthusians, have been brought forth to die. Was this to be Sir William's fate? Jim caught at a straw. When, when does the council meet? At ten o'clock in the morning. But, Jimmy, lad, you're not thinking. I, Jim replied, quickly, fire in his eyes. Five minutes alone with the king before the council meets. Five minutes. You'll help me, Dick Norris. Richard Norris cast a glance, half resigned, half despairing, at the ceiling. Aye, I'll help you, and our lady help us both. End of chapter 16